Exodus 16, 2 through 5, and 13 through 15. This is page 57 if you have a Bridgetown Bible. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in so that it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take a seat. As you may know, this summer we are working our way through the book of Exodus. We have different voices from within the Bridgetown family um, teaching and then some from without. And today it is my privilege to introduce Dr. Nijay Gupta, who's here to teach. And if you don't know about Nijay, he is a professor at Northern Seminary. He's the author of several books. He's devoted his life to studying the scriptures and teaching the scriptures. He also has a wildly popular podcast called Slow Theology with our good friend AJ Svoboda. It's all about faith, doubt, and how to um, follow Jesus in these chaotic times. And also, how many of you guys have ever heard of or read the New Living Translation? Anybody familiar with that translation? Uh, you can thank Nijay for that. He's one of the uh, lead editors on that as well. So would you give a warm, Bridgetown, welcome to Nijay. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, quick question Who is Team Barbie? Barbie Oppenheimer. Team Barbie? Okay. Team Oppenheimer? All right, all right. Wow, okay. Well, I have uh, three kids, two of them daughters, so we were Team Barbie yesterday. And um, I'm not gonna spoil the movie for you, but uh, I did notice how many allusions or kind of throwbacks to the 90s there were. And I, you know, I'm gonna turn 45 this year. I feel like pretty much all movies and TV is currently pitched to basically my age. And I'm like, this is, this is your moment, EJ. So, uh, Barbie movie, Indiana Jones, Little Mermaid, Mission Impossible, Cobra Kai, anybody? I'm reliving the, the 90s here, except with less hair. But um, in the spirit of 90s nostalgia, I want to pull a specific movie out of the time capsule, The Prince of Egypt. Now, Pastor Bethany, we're on the same, we're on the same wavelength, and she brought this up last week as well. 1998, DreamWorks Studio the Hollywood retelling of the Exodus story. Now, she talked about how epic this movie is, but for those of you that either don't remember or never saw it, I want to remind you of the cast from this movie because a lot of these people have come back to popularity. So Val Kilmer as Moses, Rafe Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Danny Glover from Lethal Weapon, 
James Avery, the father from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Patrick Stewart, and my favorite, the one and only Jeff Goldblum as Aaron Moses' brother. Not only that, you had the hit radio single, When You Believe, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. I would love to dim the lights, pass the popcorn, and just turn the movie on and just call it done, but I already wrote a sermon, so we got to go with that. But let's say it's 1995, and you're going to write a movie based on the book of Exodus, and you can't obviously include everything. So you're sitting there with some writers, and you decide what's going to go into this 99-minute movie. So of course, you're going to have to do the big stuff, right? You got to have Pharaoh. You got to have baby Moses. You're going to have 10 plagues. You're going to have the parting of the Red Sea and the walking through. I remember how CGI was just kind of coming into its own, so they used some dazzling visuals of the parting of the Red Sea and the walking through. And then the question is, how are you going to land the plane, right? Where are you going to end? Because that's just the beginning of the Bible. If you remember, and I had to go back and watch it, after the walking through the Red Sea, the, sh- the movie flashes forward in the last couple minutes to an older, uh, uh, not quite an older, but Moses uh, bringing the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. And he kind of stands there and looks out over the people, and you get this feeling as kind of the music comes back in, the movie ends, that everything is going to be fine. <laughs> right? God has freed his people. It's a nice ending, except that's not the ending of the book of Exodus. 97 minutes of the movie takes you to about Exodus 14, but Exodus goes on for another 36 chapters. And they're still journeying to the promised land in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even when they get there, things don't go very well according to Joshua and Judges. Last week, Pastor Bethany also mentioned Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, which was one of my dad's favorite movies, featuring Charlton Heston. And what I remember as a little kid from that movie is Charlton Heston saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? That whole part. And I I used to think that's just what the Bible says. And it is, Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. But did you know the verse actually goes on? And it says, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. That's the part we often leave out of our cultural imaginations as we think about the story of the Exodus. We think that it's a story about release from slavery, but that's actually just part of the story. And what we learn from the book of Exodus is freedom isn't the end It's just the beginning. Now, uh, I've been known to be called a Bible nerd, which I am proudly, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of nerdy goodness for this morning. Our Old Testament biblical book names tend to come from something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You still with me? The Greek translation that was created in about the third, second, and first century BC because Greek had dominated the known world, right? The Greek world of Alexander the Great. And so 
everything was translated into Greek pretty much, including the Old Testament. And we actually get the name Exodus from the Greek word exodus, which means way out or road out. But in the Hebraic tradition, they have different names for the Old Testament. Same book, but different title. And what they do is they'll draw out a key term from the first verse or two. And for the book of Exodus, that word is shemot, which means names. You might have heard this already. Now, that's because the book of Exodus starts, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, and it names the sons of Israel. But names actually become an important theme, a theological theme in the book of Exodus. And there's an important contrast between the fact that Pharaoh is not named. This is someone that's really important in Egypt, obviously. And yet, the people of Israel are named. And then you start to get the naming of the Lord as Yahweh. And even later on, you have this kind of affirmation of the name of Israel. Names become really important. Ultimately, what the book of Exodus is about is this covenant where the Lord knows Israel by name. And they have to go on a journey where not only do they have to leave slavery, but learn how to become a people in relationship with Yahweh. From that perspective, Exodus isn't just about liberation. Liberation is important. But it's really about the freedom to flourish, the freedom to flourish. Before we get into details, I just want to give you the big picture of where we're going, and then it'll be easier to follow along. What I think the whole book of Exodus is talking about, specifically chapter 16, which we're going to dig into, is the idea that the road from freedom to flourishing must pass through the wilderness of testing. Freedom is important. It's just the beginning. The road from freedom to flourishing must pass through the wilderness of testing. We learn about this in Exodus, but it becomes a dominant theme in the whole Bible, and we'll be talking about the New Testament throughout as well. I want to just focus in on this word testing for a minute, because this is the key term in Exodus 16. This is Exodus 16, chapter, chapter 16, verse 4. Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick as much food as they need for the day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And this is affirmed again in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you you to prove your character to find out whether or not you would obey his commandments. God has an agenda for Israel in the wilderness. They didn't just accidentally end up in the wilderness. God has a plan for the wilderness and it focuses on testing. Deuteronomy 13 verse 3, again, the Lord your God is testing you to see if you truly love him with all your heart and soul. 
Why? Why testing? Why is this so important to God's plan? You have to remember, for 400 years, Israel was in slavery in Egypt. 400 years. I mean, I can't even conceptualize that amount of time. But think about what that does to the soul of a people. Slaves, no dignity, no hope, no name, no identity, no vacation, no land. Ultimately then, testing in the wilderness for the Lord is about trust. Israel didn't have to trust Pharaoh. They were just a labor force. Aristotle famously said about slaves in his time that they're living tools, human labor. And that's how Pharaoh treated Israel. They were nobodies. And God says, I care about you. You're somebody, and I have to teach you how to be human again. And that requires testing to learn how to trust in a relationship. They had to learn how to be in a relationship with God to trust him. Now, I, whenever, whenever I read the word test, I get like flashbacks to like taking tests in high school or college, SATs, or you might hear the word test in like a BuzzFeed quiz. Take this quiz to find out which Harry Potter house you belong to. You have to get that idea of testing out of your head. It's really training. It's really about training. Learning how to trust the covenant of God through training. I feel like the Apostle Paul gives us a kind of cheat code to understand what this wilderness period of testing is all about. If we briefly turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Roman Christians are going through suffering and they're saying, wait a second, you told us the gospel was good news. So why are we going through difficulties and suffering? And Paul, in almost all of his letters, has to say, hey, listen, this is still good news. But the good news doesn't happen circumventing suffering. The good news happens through suffering, through trials, through difficulty, through wilderness, and in the wandering. Paul writes this, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Now, the word for character here is dokime. It's the passive form of the word for test, and it refers to someone who has been tested and therefore has developed strength and character. Think about it this way. My dad is a surgeon. He's been doing surgery for 50 years. And what I've learned from him is, if you need surgery, you don't just want the doctor that went to the Ivy League school. You want the doctor with the most successful experience. They've been tested, formed. They have character, strength, and resilience based on experience, right? You want to know that the person working on your car or your heart has experience in the real world. The road from freedom to flourishing must pass through the wilderness of testing. 
Or we might say the wilderness of forming character. God puts Israel in the wilderness because he wants them to grow in character and strength. The story doesn't end with, I've cut the bonds of slavery, good luck out there. God continues on a journey towards their flourishing, but it must pass into the wilderness. Now, wilderness is a theologically important place and idea in the Bible. Wilderness involves uncivilized places that lack the comforts of favorable conditions for humans. You experience a kind of sensory deprivation. You're away from your comfort mechanisms. And you're forced to ask, who am I really? And why is life worth living? Israel's experience of this deprivation happens in hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. I think about my friends who have gone through some kind of addiction, rehabilitation experience. And what I know from them is you have to go through some kind of deprivation to kind of do a life reset. Cut off from your old habits, maybe good and bad. They might take your phone away, limit what you eat, pare you down to the basics of shelter, food, clothing, human interaction, so that you can kind of take stock. Who am I? What is my life all about? And Christians for 2,000 years have looked at the book of Exodus and said, in a sense, our whole lives are lived in the wilderness of testing and character and strength. And therefore, the wilderness is an image about discipleship. God doesn't just want to save people. He wants to save people by transforming them into his own likeness, right? And if he wants to do that, the good news is it's going to happen. The bad news is we have to go through growing pains. If he's going to grow us up, we have to go through the wilderness. The Bible teaches that the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you're free, cut off from sin and death, hidden in Christ, taken to the far side of the Red Sea with Egypt behind you. But the journey doesn't stop there. God puts you on a journey towards flourishing, but just like Israel, you got to rehabilitate in the wilderness. You're going to be tested, and if God is going to live with you forever in vulnerable, deep, intimate relationship, you need to learn how to love him, trust him, and obey him. That's hard. But we're given scripture as a guide for how to survive the wilderness of testing, training, character formation, and discipleship. So, own up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16, follow along. We're gonna journey through this chapter. And as I was studying this over the last month or so, I felt like the Lord was giving me five really basic but profoundly important lessons for how to survive the wilderness that we experience. We'll be highlighting those. So what's the context? Chapter 16, verse 1, Israel has left Egypt. They're on the far side of the Red Sea. And they've been given the promised land as a hope and a future, but first they have to pass through the wilderness. They're on a journey towards Mount Sinai. 
And the very first thing that happens, verse two and three, is that Israel complains. They grumble against Moses and Aaron, and they say, we wish we were back in Egypt. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Egypt was better, they said. Our stomachs were full, and now we're going to die of starvation and hunger. Here's the first lesson right away. Don't let the wilderness distort the truth. The wilderness can create these mirages. And that little devil on your shoulder is going to say, maybe Christianity isn't that good. And these doubts are going to start cropping up. And you're going to say, yeah, there's some bad churches. There's some bad Christians out there doing some bad things, and you're going to see a mirage that says, just give up, let go, find something else. The wilderness distorts the truth. It will make the neighbor's grass greener and their houses bigger. Israel, this is, I would say it's a little bit of humor here in chapter 16 where they say, our stomachs were so full in Egypt. I mean, they were slaves, Right? Their stomachs were full because Pharaoh wanted to make sure they can work hard. But I love how it's put in Numbers chapter 11 where they reflect on these complaints. And Israel says, chapter 11, uh, Numbers 11 verse 5, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. All the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Doesn't it sound like a Portland food cart? Like you could get this as a number five at the Hawthorne food carts. Extra leeks and garlic, please. Sounds like a good brunch. Israel misremembers the difference between Egypt and the wilderness. The wilderness distorts the truth. And they're brought to a place of grumbling. And whenever the Old Testament talks about grumbling, it represents a lack of trust in God, rejecting God's path and plan. So what's the solution to grumbling? We all do it. What's the solution? I feel like we can find some help if we turn to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And I think it's teaching that the opposite of grumbling is openness to wherever God wants to take us. Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about faith. It's talking about faith in the Old Testament. It's talking about the faith of Abraham and the patriarchs who wandered the earth, and it says this, chapter 11, verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. The line I love from that is, they saw the promises that God had given and welcomed them from a distance. The way I learned this was from the Revised Standard Version, they greeted the fulfilled promises from afar. I almost think like Abraham and the patriarchs are kind of wandering, they're walking like in the wilderness, and a kind of portal opens up. I'm thinking like Doctor Strange kind of portal. A portal opens up and then they can actually see God's glorious future. Eden, New Eden, Mount Zion, right? A rich and lavish garden. And they can't make it there. They're never going to make it there. Abraham and the patriarchs. 
but they greet it from afar. They, I almost imagine them waving to those promises. These true but unfulfilled promises, they wave to them from afar. And the spiritual vision and ability to open that portal up and see that future is the opposite of grumbling. Grumbling says, I want to go back to the slave houses. I want to go back to Egypt. Openness says, God has given us these promises and that needs to be pulling us forward into God's future. Don't let the wilderness distort the truth. God is faithful. And church, hear this. What Exodus teaches us is that the future will be better than the past. How many of us have had moments where we've been paralyzed by fear of what might happen? What might happen in the future? How many of us can be crippled by fear? Because we're worried about the future. Now, obviously, we're meant to do everything with our hands, our hearts, and our minds to protect our world, to make lives better for people. But God has already given us the promise that energizes our work, that the future will be better than the past. The future will be better than the past. The first thing that God gives to his people in chapter 16 is the manna promise. Chapter 16, verse 4, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. The first thing that Israel does in the wilderness is complain. Now, I have children, and they complain, and usually my first instinct isn't to give them what they want, right? But notice what God does. He says, I'm going to take care of you. They're complaining in a very bitter, hurtful way to God, and his first instinct is compassion. Would it be that Christians were like that, right? What, how amazing would our testimony be if our first reaction to mean-spirited comments or people or grumbling is the compassion of the Father? And here's what the Lord wants to communicate to Israel. I will give you what you need to survive. This is lesson two. In the wilderness... God will give you what you need to survive. My kids are just coming to the age where they are aware that the world is a dangerous place. And, um, you know, my oldest, uh, she, at nighttime, uh, you know, and she stays up late. At nighttime, she'll ask, like, right around 11.30 or midnight, she'll ask, you know, are the doors locked and is the alarm on? Because she's going to bed and she wants to make sure the house is okay. And what we've tried to tell our kids is, listen, our job as parents is to make sure you're safe. Your job is to be a kid. And I feel like in a way, this is what God is saying to Israel. Your job is to be a child of God. My job is to worry about stuff, right? 
How could it transform our lives if we released ourselves from all those fears and just said, my job isn't to worry about all the world's problems. My job isn't to worry if the door is locked and the alarm's on. That's God's job. My job is to be me. God says, I will take care of you. You belong to me. Chapter 16, verse 11. You will have all the bread you want. Then you'll know that I am the Lord, your God. I love that he doesn't just say, here's who I am. He says, here, eat this bread, all right? Get some calories in you. Get your energy back. Stop being hangry. And know that I am the Lord. And he wants to associate their knowledge of his name, Yahweh, with the fact that he takes care of them. That he takes care of them. That he is a God of provision and grace. God wants to be known. God wants to be known. And he wants to be known as the provider. Then he actually gives them the manna, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 15. And they say, what is it? And I love verse 15. They had no idea what it was. I, I have no idea why it all happens this way. But I love that they end up calling it, what is it? Like, wouldn't it be funny to go to a restaurant and there's just an item there called, what is it? And then you could do one of these kind of jokes, like, what is it? Exactly. They had no idea what it was. There's a kind of mysterious nature to it. I think for a lesson for all of us to say, don't worry about the details. Let God worry about the details. You just eat it. Now, they had to eat it for 40 years, but he did give it to them. What I love about the giving of the manna, though, is the way God gives it. And that he actually builds into this free food the opportunity and importance of them learning how to live together as a community with each other and with God. I love to ask the question, how could God have done something differently and what would have it looked like? Like, why didn't he give them an all-you-can-eat buffet? Or like a chocolate fondue fountain? Why did he give them manna? He wants to teach them the importance of sharing. He wants them to know that the fear of scarcity leads to hoarding and fighting. How many of you remember the 2020 toilet paper shortage? <laughs> we were so stupid. Like, we're like, I'm going to get a thousand, I'm going to buy out Costco. Got some napkins here just in case, some paper towel rolls. We're going to be okay. Like, what are you eating that you need that much toilet paper? <laughs> How many cans of Campbell's chicken noodle soup do you still have in your doomsday pantry? Here's the thing about manna is it came with some rules. You couldn't take extra. Right? You couldn't say, no one's looking, I'm going to take double. When I uh, first moved to Oregon, we lived in Sherwood in an apartment uh, complex uh, as we were looking for a house. And it was one of these like hip, cool vibe apartment buildings, just newly built. And there was like a common area, you know, at, at the entrance, like a kitchen, living room area. And Keurig was the big thing back then. So you had a Keurig, and you had a big um, container of Keurig pods. 
And my wife and I walked in, the woman, uh, the, the, the um, you know, manager is showing us around. She's like, you can come here and have a coffee. And I, I leaned over to my wife and I said, those Keurig pods are gonna be gone by next week. <laughs> and guess what happened? A week later, the Keurig pods are gone. Two weeks later, the Keurig machine is gone. Why? Because humans sometimes hoard. We take out of selfishness and fear. So here's the lesson that God wants to teach his people. Lesson three, make a friend in the wilderness. Make a friend in the wilderness. Sharing is caring. I think similarly about a quote, one of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote, we are all in the same boat in a stormy sea and we owe each other a terrible loyalty. Life is a wilderness or a stormy sea and we can't do it on our own and we're gonna survive if we ask for help, if we do it together. We owe each other a terrible loyalty. Imagine if you have a disability and you're in the wilderness and you can't go out and collect manna. Imagine if you're elderly or imagine the babies that were born, the young children that were born in the wilderness. 40 years is a long time. You need to depend on other people collecting for you. You couldn't take extra because God wanted everyone to have just enough. He could have given them a lot extra, like we find in the feeding of the multitudes in the New Testament. He could have done that, so he chose not to. Why? He needed us to learn generosity, selflessness, love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine they were 400 years slaves, and as slaves, you're scraping by. And he's teaching them a whole new way to be human in the wilderness. Fast forward to the Apostle Paul, and he learns about some poor churches in Judea that have suffered a famine, and they're not able to operate, and maybe they're starving. So the Apostle Paul goes around to the churches that he's connected to, and he takes up a collection, an offering, a love gift of money and food and resources that they can collectively give to these poor churches. And the Corinthian church initially says, yep, we'll do it. Send us the information. We'll write a check. And then when he checks up on them, they say, I don't know if it's going to fit in the budget this year. So he has to give them a pep talk to say, listen, this is actually really important. This isn't optional. You have to do this. And this is what he says. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Right now, you Corinthians have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. He's quoting from Exodus 16. Now, that must have been in Exodus some kind of miracle, no matter how much you collected, it was only going to be what you needed. And if you collected too little, you're still going to have enough. For Paul, the miracle is that we look out for one another. That we share, and this is a Christian principle. You see, in a limited economy where there are endless material resources, equality is essential to peace, prosperity, and mutual respect. Think about that. In a limited economy, 
where there aren't endless material resources. Equality is essential to peace, prosperity, and mutual respect. Hoarding creates an unsustainable community. St. John Chrysostom, a theologian of the fourth century, wrote a sermon calling out Christians for greediness and hoarding. And he turns to the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2 to call them out on this sin. He says, God gave all humanity the natural resources we enjoy, earth to walk on, air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat. So who are we to claim anything as mine and not yours? Imagine if I charged you for oxygen, the air that you breathe. I... I I have a little bit of an embarrassing story, but we've all, we've all been there. I flew Spirit Airlines once. <laughs> and uh, a lot of problems there, but I forgot to fill my water bottle up after security, which is a huge mistake. And I got on the plane and I am parched, right? The air is dry. And so I ask for a cup of water and they don't give you water, you either have to buy a bottle of water, I think it was $3, or you could, and I said, I just want regular water. They said, well, you can buy tea, a, a, a cup of hot water without a tea bag for $1.50. I was like, you're gonna make me go get water from the bathroom? They're like, you can't drink that water. <laughs> and I, I remember yelling out, this is America. <laughs> Chris Austin would be very upset by this, by the way. Who are we to claim anything as mine and not yours? In my heart, I didn't say it out loud. I said, you should be called flesh, not spirit. <laughs> and I tore my, I put on a sackcloth. <laughs> then they put the marshal next to me. Here's the lesson. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't hoard. Make a friend in the wilderness. Let's go on, verses 19 and 20. Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning, but some of them did. They didn't listen and kept some of it until morning, but by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Here's the lesson. Trust is a daily choice. It's a now thing. Hoarding is trusting in yourself. God wants them to wait every day on him. You can't binge trust. Think about that. You can't binge trust. It's daily commitment and relinquishment, a giving up of selfishness. The most transformational changes you'll make in your life will not come from big events, going to a conference, having a mountaintop experience, but from making good choices every single day. I know this because I'm on Weight Watchers. Every single day. So here's lesson four we get from the fact that this manna won't carry over. Don't live in the worries of the future. Don't live in the worries of the future. 
God is saying to Israel in the desert, when you were slaves, you were always worried. Worried about the next day. Worried about the next meal. What's Pharaoh going to do next? Who's going to die? Who's going to be executed? Is there going to be enough? But God says to Israel, I promise to take care of you. I will. I will come through. Don't live in the worries of the future. Now this point, transparency here, I stole this one from Jesus. Jump ahead to Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 34. Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Seek the kingdom, seek the king, Jesus is saying, and you'll get the kingdom's wealth. Seek the king and you'll get the kingdom's wealth. The last major section of chapter 16 of Exodus is about the Sabbath. Here's verse 23. This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. Now, anytime they're given a command, they just test it, right? And then they fail. So they go out and collect the next day and it doesn't work. But notice how God is giving them another important lesson in the wilderness. At preparing for this message reminded me that the Ten Commandments aren't given till a few chapters later. So they haven't actually been introduced to the Sabbath yet. This is their first introduction of the Sabbath. And they need to learn this lesson in the wilderness I gotta tell you, I find it hard to rest when I'm busy and stressed. I, I can rest on vacation, like that's easy. If I know I've set a week aside, or a couple weeks, or a weekend, and I can just relax, sleep in, but when I'm busy and stressed out, that's when I tend to not rest. Anyone else like that? But God says to Israel, you need to rest in the wilderness to remember that this life, this whole life is a gift from God, whether you're on the mountain or in the desert. This whole life is a gift from God, and, and, and we need to stop on a regular basis to remember that. We don't have time to go into a whole big teaching on the Sabbath. I'm sure one of the messages coming up will be talking about the Sabbath. But I remember, especially as a younger person, really confused about the purpose of the Sabbath. Is it a Netflix day? Should I take a nap? Am I allowed to mow the lawn? Should I hit the pub? Like, do I play pickleball? What do you do on the Sabbath? So I wanna give you like a like two minute crash course in the Sabbath so we can understand why it appears in this passage. In the Old Testament, I wanna boil it down to three key things that are stated about the Sabbath to help me to remember what it's all about. First, it's holy. It's sacred time. It's special and it's from God. Six days are ordinary and one is holy and special. Leviticus warns the death penalty for not taking a Sabbath. That's how important this is. Second, 
there's repeated language that God gave them the Sabbath. It's a gift from God. It's not optional. It's not like, uh, if I have time, or maybe I will, or I'm too busy. It's a gift. It's not an obligation. It is an obligation, but it's a gift from God. It's something to improve our lives. And third, and perhaps most importantly, the language that repeatedly appears with the term Sabbath is stop or rest or pause. And that resting or stopping has a purpose. When I'm busy and stressed and I work overwork, then I just don't think through my life. I don't really soak up and enjoy my life. And there's a lesson here to Israel in the wilderness. Stop, stop on the Sabbath and find joy in the wilderness. Some of us want to just leave the wilderness. We're just like, I want to be done with the wilderness. I've spent enough time in the wilderness, right? It's not good for my skin. (laughs) But you may live your whole life in the wilderness. Think about the... Think there were, there were some Israelites that were born in the wilderness and died in the wilderness. Given like a short life expectancy, especially in the wilderness, there were probably lots of people that started their life in the wilderness and died before the promised land. And they didn't experience the exodus and they didn't experience the Canaan. And God is saying, don't wait. Don't wait for some magical future where life is easy and great, where you can rest. Stop now and find joy. Sabbath commands us, stop, rest, relax, smell the roses, take a nap, play with your kids, eat a honey stick. You don't always have to be working. There's a story I came across a few years ago that's really helped me drill in why the Sabbath is important. I want to share that with you right now. One day, a fisherman was lying on a beautiful beach with his fishing pole propped up in the sand and his solitary line cast out into the sparkling blue surf. He was enjoying the warmth of the afternoon sun and the prospect of catching a fish. About that time, a businessman came walking down the beach trying to relieve some of the stress of his workday. He noticed the fisherman sitting on the beach and decided to find out why this fisherman was fishing instead of working harder to make a living for himself. You aren't going to catch many fish that way, said the businessman. You should be working rather than just lying here on the beach. The fisherman looked up at the businessman and replied, why? Well, you can get bigger nets and catch more fish. So, said the fisherman, the businessman replied, you will make money and you'll be able to buy a boat, which will then result in larger catches of fish. Then, said the fisherman, the businessman was beginning to get irritated. You can buy a bigger boat and hire some people to work for you. And then, said the fisherman, now the businessman was getting upset. Don't you understand? You can build up a fleet of fishing boats, sail all over the world and let your employees catch fish for you. What then? The businessman now was red with rage and shouted, don't you understand you can become so rich you can enjoy life? The fisherman looked up and said, what do you think I'm doing now? (laughs) 
stop, find joy in the wilderness. Eat, drink, be merry, kiss someone, throw a party, binge a whole season of a good show, smile, laugh, play, because work will still be there tomorrow. Life is for living. So find joy even in the wilderness. Friends, the wilderness is hard. It, it's rough, and God gives us the gift of a day. This day, he provides the Sabbath for our enjoyment. It's a gift, not a burden. The last thing that happens in Exodus 16 is that some of the manna is meant to be collected as a commemoration for Israel's history and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The big picture, the reason why this manna is collected is it's a testimony to God sticking with his people in the wilderness 40 years of manna. Nobody wants to be in the wilderness. But guess what? Even Jesus had his time of testing and training. Before Jesus could go public, he had to pass through the wilderness. And did you know he gave us something special to help us through the wilderness? He gave us the Lord's Prayer. About 10 years ago, I did a study of the Lord's Prayer and discovered it's the most recited, most memorized part of the whole Bible. And the Lord's Prayer is the most studied piece of literature in all of the world. And did you know it's basically a tribute to the book of Exodus? It's a prayer for wilderness wanderers. I'm going to do a really quick breakdown of the Lord's Prayer along those lines, and then I'd like to pray the Lord's Prayer together as we conclude. Real quick, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Israel went from being nobody's slaves in Egypt to being the covenantal son of the Father, Yahweh. And God revealed his name, his unique and special name to this special people. God made himself known to Moses and Israel in Exodus. He taught them his name, and he called Israel to himself. Out of Egypt I called my son. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This comes especially from Exodus 19.6, where God says to Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, a treasured possession. Israel is not just liberated from slavery, but made to be a priestly kingdom embodying the ideals of the kingdom of God. The Ten Commandments teach Israel how to live just like Yahweh. Truth, not lies. Sharing, not stealing. Generosity, not covetousness. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're saying Zion, not Egypt. Yahweh, not Pharaoh. Manna from heaven over onions from slave lands. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the one closest to the imagery of Exodus, and it's, it's a transparent allusion to the manna. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're embodying the prayers of Israel, saying, I am needy, I can't provide for myself. And we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Feed me, Jesus, every day. Bring me back to your fridge, your pantry, your storehouse. Forgive us our sins, we forgive those who sin against us. We will only survive the wilderness in generous community. If you think you're gonna survive the wilderness alone, you're a fool. 
Yahweh forgave impatient, disobedient Israel. Moses forgave Israel's blaming. We are called to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just as Israel was tempted and tested in the wilderness, so Jesus was by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Just like Jesus, we will be tempted and tested. But what we're praying is that God would not leave us in the wilderness. The Lord's Prayer says, I am weak. You are strong, so don't leave me. Church, I don't want to be tested in the wilderness, but I know that the training is good for me. I submit myself to that testing when I pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. I say, I can't do this alone. Jesus, don't leave me to my weakness. And finally, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We're praying, Zion, not Egypt. Flourishing, not slavery. Yahweh is Lord, not Pharaoh, and certainly not me as Lord of my life. We're going to pray in a minute, but I want to give you just a quick reminder of the lessons from the wilderness. Real quick, lessons one to five. Don't let the wilderness distort the truth. It'll make you long for Egypt again. But know you're in the right place. God is with you. Lesson two, God will give you what you need to survive. Trust him. Lesson three, make a friend in the wilderness. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You can't do it alone. Lesson four, don't live in the worries of the future. Jesus said, let tomorrow worry about itself. And lesson five, stop. Find joy, even and especially in the wilderness. Stand with me. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. It's on the screen, so we make sure we say the same words. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.